Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 3 is where we left off last week, and it is... Easter Sunday, but really every Sunday here at Crosspoint is Resurrection Sunday, and we have been journeying through Paul's letter to the Romans, and in God's kindness to us, we actually find ourselves in a passage that is one of the clearest passages about the good news of the gospel in the whole Bible. In fact, some really famous people in the history of the church have said that this passage, this paragraph, and in particular about a verse and a half that we're going to stare at this morning, is the very center of the Bible. So I'd love for you to open your Bible to Romans 3. We're going to read verses 21 through 26, zero down in on verses 24 and 25 where we left off last week. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the seat in front of you. Uh, You can keep that Bible as our gift to you, and if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Romans 3, verse 21 on page 737 or page 941 of the Bible in front of you. Same version, just two different printings of it, so that's why there's two different page numbers depending on the one that you have. And keep that Bible as our gift to you. In a moment, I'm going to read that, and then we're going to stare at that passage more closely. As you're finding it, I think the most fundamental question that every human being needs to ask is how can a person be made right with God? In fact, I think that's baseline. That is absolutely ground zero in what it means to be a person and to respond to our Creator God. Through the centuries, people have tried varying ways to be right with, to please this notion that we all have that there is a creator. Maybe you heard of this man named Timothy Treadwell. He was what they called the grizzly man. And recently I heard a a talk about uh, this passage in the Bible that referenced his life. And he was a man that loved grizzly bears. And he, actually a documentary was made about his life. I think it was called The Grizzly Man. And many things have been written about him. And he spent 13 summers living with grizzly bears in Alaska. In fact, there was footage of him that he filmed that became part of the documentary that he said when he was out in the wilderness with these bears. And he, get, he got incredibly close to these bears. And he said that when he was out caring for these bears and bringing attention to their preservation and just their lives, he felt not only good about himself, but he said he felt like he was pleasing God, that God was pleased with him because of his work and life with grizzly bears over 13 summers in Alaska. Well, unfortunately, in 2003, he was attacked and killed by grizzly bears. I know that's a terrible story to tell on Easter morning. Happy, happy Sunday to you. But I think virtually all humanity, if they don't answer that question rightly, how can we be made right with God? How can we please God? Well, it may not kill us in a violent, horrible way like Timothy Treadwell died, 
but it will ultimately grind us to the stone and kill us. And in this passage that we're going to read today is the clearest answer, I believe, in all of Scripture as to how a person can be made right with God. So let me read Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, and then we're going to zero back down on verses 24 and 25. Verse 21, Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me pray and then then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. As Reuben prayed for us at the beginning, we thank you for your Bible that you have inspired men to write, to transcribe your very words to us over the centuries, and you have protected it and guarded it and given it to us, and you've given us trustworthy translations in our own language, and it's a word that we know comes from you, and because it's breathed out by you, it's, it's your word, it's, it's true, it's without error, it's full of your authority. And so I pray this morning that you would take your word and that your Holy Spirit that inspired men to write this word would blow through this room this morning and do your work, that your word would not return to you void, but it would accomplish your will and your spirit would open our hearts, that believers in this room would see afresh and worship more passionately the beauty of of your son and the good news of what you have done that we as a result of hearing it afresh would worship you more more passionately I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus that by your kindness you would make the answer to that question clear how can a person be made right with the holy God I pray that they would hear the answer to that question and that they would respond to that and that you would give them the ability to respond to that good news. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through Romans chapter, the whole book, and we've been in Romans 1, 2, and 3 up to this point. Just to give you a little context of where we are before this passage that we read this morning is that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he is explaining to them in probably the most detailed fashion of any letter that he writes in the New Testament, the good news of what God has done, this holy God who created everything and knew that this creation would fall and planned for this creation to fall and planned to save this creation through sending his son Jesus to come and live as a man and die on a cross and rise again, 
This is Paul's most thorough explanation of how God, the one true holy God, has determined to save, to reconcile a great number of people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. And up to this point in this letter in Romans, which has 16 chapters, which, by the way, if you come back next week, we're just going to pick back up and work through the rest of, the, of this chapter. We're just working our way through Romans. In the first three chapters up to this point, Paul has been building a case that all of humanity, no matter where they come from, whether they are Jewish people in the Old Testament who were God's chosen people to be his representatives to the nations so that through their life together as a people, they might be a kind of witness to the world, or whether a person was just a Gentile, not one of God's uh, Jewish people, just a person. He's building this case and has built this case that all people everywhere by nature are fallen because we are all children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we have inherited something from them. It's a nature that is contrary to God, and it's a sinful nature the Bible is very clear about. And, and that sinful nature, because God is holy, it separates us from God. And so we, and this is what Paul's point is in the beginning of Romans, is that we as people are all, all of us, no matter what neighborhood you come from or what type of family you came from, All of us are in a predicament that we cannot solve, and that is that we, by nature, are rebels against a holy God, and that rebellion has actually spiritually killed us, has made us completely unable to do anything right in regards to making ourselves right with God. And there's this Old Testament that has this law that points to that. In fact, the whole Old Testament is really about just that, that God is holy, people are not. He's given them this law, and this law was never intended to save them, but it was really just meant to be a kind of flashlight that that illuminated their fallenness and showed his holiness against mankind's fallenness. And so we are now in this predicament, and in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul transitions from his case against humanity to the good news of how God will and has made these sinners who could do nothing for themselves before this holy God, how he has made them right with himself. Not through anything that they have done, but through what he has done, the Father sending his Son, Jesus, who's fully God, to die, to live a perfect life, die on the cross and rise again, raised by the power of God the Holy Spirit, so that those who would trust in him could be made right with. His righteousness, the righteousness of the Son, could be theirs, and their sin could be atoned for by his death. And that's what this paragraph is about. And in verse 24 and 25, Paul zeroes down in on that great truth. And I want us to answer that question. How can a person be made right with God? By looking at verses 24 and 25. And I think Paul gives us three points there to help us answer that question. How a person can be made right with God. So let's stare again at verse 24 and 25. The first thing that Paul tells us about how a person can be made right with a holy God, in verse 24, he says that we are made right by grace. By grace. Look again at verse 24. He says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. Maybe some of you have a translation that says we are justified freely by 
his grace. So the first thing that Paul says in verses 24 and 25, which is what we're zeroing in on this morning, is how is a person made right with God? Answer number one is by his grace. And what does this word justified or justification mean? It means how can guilty people, it's a legal term. I think, uh, I, was about to say, I was about to say all of us have been in court, right? Well, I'm just like, I just assume that you're all criminals. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, all of us at least are familiar with a courtroom scene, right? <laughs> Bunch of felons. <laughs> and we all understand that there is this decision that is made by a jury and this verdict that is issued by a judge, guilty or not guilty. And this justification term in the Bible is really that. It is merely a declaration of God about the legal, and by legal, I'm not talking about the American judicial system. I'm talking about the heavenly court of God. It is a declaration of God, a legal declaration of God, whereby he says that this guilty sinner is no longer guilty, but they are now innocent. That's what justification is, and it's important for us to understand that that it's actually just purely a declaration. At this point in the Christian life, it's not actually God making us righteous or making us like Jesus. That's the process that comes after that happens and there's the rest of the Christian life, which is called sanctification. But justification is a declaration of God whereby he deems guilty sinners just, right, not guilty before his presence. How does he do it? By grace. As a gift, this word grace means for God to show kindness, to extend mercy. And this mercy then causes that person joy. It's free. Um, when I was in, I grew up in one corner of the country and I went to college in another corner of the country. And so uh, I spent my college years for like Christmas break and summer break flying from San Diego to New York. I grew up in Southern California, went to college in New York. And um, I would fly Delta all the time from San Diego to New York. And uh, I remember, and I was 18, 19 years old, not real savvy. And I was always fascinated with, um, we didn't have like iPods or anything like that, you know, so you just had to kind of hunker down for a four and a half hour flight across the country. And I loved Delta's Sky Mall magazine. It was just great pictures and advertisements of really cool stuff that just didn't seem to be on sale anywhere except in the Sky Mall magazine. Well, because I am by nature a sinner and still dealing with the residue of sin, I, there was advertisements and pages of things that I wanted to keep. And um, so what I'd do is I want, I'd want to tear off a page or like a little advertisement of something that I thought would be cool that I could like call. And this was back when you actually had to call a 1-800 number to order something. It was late 80s before Vice President Gore had released the internet for public use. We were still <laughs> kind of, you'd have to call to order something. And I, but I didn't want the person next to me to see me tearing like dismembering this magazine for the other customer that would come, right? And so I would, you know, like, you know, you'd 
like, try and distract the person next to you, and I'd have the little page ready that I wanted to tear off, <coughs> rip it, you know, kind of, kind of stored away in my, my pocket. And there was this one flight. I, I, I spent like four years doing this, flying back and forth to New York. And there was this one flight where there was this guy, and he was kind of privy to my game. And he was like, you know, I don't know if you know this, but like that's a complimentary copy. <laughs> On the front of the magazine, it says like free, like take one. <laughs> and I was <laughs> trying to sneak and tear a page. <laughs> Friends, that's what Paul is saying about what it means to be right with God. It's a gift. You don't have to pay for it. It's free. We are justified freely by grace. But then let's stare a little bit further. Let's look at the second half of verse 24. It says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his Blood. Okay, lots of important words in there, and we're going we're gonna to unpack it here in just a second. But the second thing that Paul tells us, the first thing he's told us about how a person can be made right with God is by grace. It's free. It's not earned. It's a gift of God. And the second thing that he wants to tell us about how a person can be made right with God in this verse is that it is in Christ. We are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Okay, now, oh, j just a little warning here. We're about to kind of plunge in to some words and to some concepts that are maybe what people might call a little theologically deep, okay? And now, just so you know, there's like a little subculture of pastors, and they mail out all these things like before important Sundays like Easter and to tell you how you should do stuff. I just think like 99.9% .9 of it is just absolute garbage. And one of the things that they tell you on a Sunday like this is they say, oh, there might be a lot of people that are coming on that Sunday that aren't as familiar with the Bible message. And Okay, that may be you. Don't feel like a second-class citizen. They say, so as a result, you should keep it real, real light, and you shouldn't go deep. Well, I was looking at you guys coming in, and I think you can handle it. <laughs> so you know what I say to that? I say baloney. All right, but listen, you can't handle this. This is, come on now, pay attention. This is not, this is not rocket science. It's clear, and this is beautiful and true. Okay, so, so what, I mean, what type of friend? Let me give you an analogy. What type of friend would I be if I said, come over to my house and we're going to watch the national championship football game, okay? And I have a TV in my garage, and it's a fuzzy black and white with rabbit ears on it. But in the room next to the garage, I've got a 60-inch 4K ultra, you know, whatever. I don't even know the words. It just, it's crystal clear, HDTV. What type of friend would I be if, we, if I just stayed in the garage with you and said, how about that? Look at that. Friends, I want us to see the gospel in HD, in 4K. I want us to see it clearly, and you can see it. So, okay, let's look at these words. There's two words in here that we just have to understand as it pertains to in Christ. Paul says it is through the redemption. What does this word redemption or redeem mean? God in the Old Testament, and really in the whole Bible, 
has always been very concerned and has always put forward this idea of redemption throughout the whole scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. In particular, we see it really prevalently in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there were various kinds of ways that this word redeem or redemption was used. Generally, sort of three ways. One was a a kind of legal obligation to God. Israel knew that by their nature, they fell short of God's standard and God gave them this law. And he gave them this law through this man named Moses that he wrote down and it had all of these regulations about how Israel was to to, uh, purify themselves and to appease God, to appease his holiness and his justifiable anger against them for their rebellion. And one of the things that they would have to do would they would have to redeem their lives by offering the firstborn of all of their their flocks. So it's the firstborn of the, of the cows, the firstborn of the goats, the lambs, everything. Even their firstborn children were to be offered to the Lord to redeem their own lives. Now, God didn't take their children's lives like he did the animals, but as a substitute for their firstborn sons, they would have to redeem that life by offering an animal as a substitute to redeem the life of their firstborn. And this rhythm was part of the life of the nation of Israel because they knew that they were obligated to God. Another way that this word redeemed is used in the Old Testament is in in the sense of family obligations. And it was really meant to protect people and their property. So I think some of us are probably familiar with the Old Testament story of Ruth and Boaz. And there was this, there was this widow who lost her husband. And it was in the Jewish culture, in fact, part of God's law to Old Testament Israel, that relatives, a brother or a cousin or any male relative, the closest male relative of the man who died, was really obliged to redeem, to marry this widow to protect her. And that's another way that this word redeemed is used to protect people from losing all of their inheritance. And this, this man would redeem his family's name or property by protecting the family. And, and another way that this word redeemed is used in the Old Testament is it really means to cover, to atone for, to make amends for a sin or a crime. So if I have um, a cow and you have a teenage son and he's, you know, being a knucklehead and he runs over my cow with his go-kart, which I don't think they had back in Exodus, but let's just say he was just being crazy and he killed my cow, well, you would be obligated to make amends for that transgression and the word used there is to redeem, to pay back. And so that's the idea here that, that whatever's happening in Christ, Paul is alerting us to that it is a redemption. Jesus has, by his death on the cross, redeemed. He has purchased us for God. And it's important for us to realize that this redemption is in Christ Jesus. So we need to think about who, who Jesus is. But Paul says this in another letter to a young pastor named Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this Jesus, through whom redemption is, is a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. So this 
drills down on two very important truths that we need to understand about Jesus and his nature. One is that Jesus is fully God. So we have this picture of God the Father, and then we have God the Son, Jesus, who, through whom redemption comes. And it's important for us to understand who this Jesus is biblically to understand how that redemption is worked out. So the first thing that we need to understand about Jesus is that he is fully God. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1 where Paul is writing to this church at Colossae. And he writes these words about Jesus, the Son. He says, verse 15 of chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by firstborn there, Paul does not mean that um, Jesus actually was created by God. It literally, I think, uh, it, it literally means it's his position of priority as the son who is the heir of all things. So it doesn't mean many cults have arisen through the centuries thinking that this word means that Jesus was created and therefore not fully divine. That's not the case. This is more a word that describes Jesus' status, not his chronology. Jesus has always existed. Verse 16, for by him... All things were created. So Jesus is not just the son of God that became a man. He's the creator God in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, again, we're speaking of Jesus the son, is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, remember again, not chronology, but speaking to Jesus' status and rights and privileges as the firstborn, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if you just read that, even if you didn't have any prior exposure to the Bible, if you just read that, I think instinctively you would realize that what the writer is telling us there is that this Jesus is God himself. In John chapter 1, the apostle John says the very same thing. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, speaking of Jesus. And he's going to use this word, this Greek concept called the word, which is the logos or the wisdom of God, to actually speak of Jesus himself. He's trying to connect with the Greek culture by describing Jesus in this way. And he says, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So he's saying there that clearly the Word, meaning Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is fully God. So this redemption that comes through this Jesus is coming through a man who is God. And he's also fully man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Because not only is Jesus fully God, he is also clearly, biblically, the Bible tells us, he is a man. Just like us. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 verse 14 and following. He says, since therefore the children, that's us, mankind, share in flesh and blood... He himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore he, speaking of Jesus again, 
had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There's that word again that's in our text in Romans 3 that we're going to explain in a second. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he had to be made like us in every way. Just one more verse out of Hebrews. Flip over to Hebrews 4. Listen to what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, that's speaking of Jesus, how he is is the mediator or the go-between between us, a holy God, and sinful people. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he is not just fully God, he is fully man. So think of it this way. Jesus' dual nature divine and human, doesn't mean that Jesus is, and friends, by the way, this is a mystery. If you're like struggling to um, understand how this could be, like how could somebody be fully God and fully man, how exactly does that work? Well, welcome to the world of theological mystery that nobody has been able to fully understand. In fact, I would offer that if we could fully understand this and categorize it and sort of put a little bow on it and, and, and sort of put it on its shelf, then we should all be very scared because that could mean that God could be completely explained, which would mean he isn't really fully God, right? But think of it this way. Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% God and always has been and has never stopped being 100% God. And in the incarnation, that means the, the Jesus becoming a man through being born through a virgin, he became also 100% man, fully man, yet perfect, obedient, without sin. So he's 100% God, and he's 100% man. And it's this Jesus that this redemption comes through. Now that's important for us to understand because we live in a world that misunderstands Jesus. And if you're going to understand the answer to the most important question that every human being has to answer, how can a person be made right with God? Paul says that the answer is in Christ. You need to know who Christ is biblically. How, let me just pause here and ask you a question. Just honestly, just even think about the influences of our culture or maybe our background or our upbringing. Who have you thought Jesus is? Maybe even before hearing these scriptures or just, just by your upbringing. What are some things that you sort of have to detox from in your sort of misunderstandings of who Jesus is? I am a child of the 70s, which, by the way, I think, musically, was probably the best decade ever. Just, just my humble opinion. And in the 1970s, there were lots of soft rockers, right? Air Supply, Ario Speedwagon, Journey, Chicago, Boston. Basically, they were all the same band. They sounded just the same. <laughs> there was the Bee Gees and Andy Gibb. 
And to me, sort of the growing up in Southern California in a sort of hippie culture, uh, I have this sort of cultural picture of Jesus as like being one of the Hardy Boys or Andy Gibb. He's got blue eyes, soft olive skin, feathered hair. Always has a gentle look on his face. And I think many of us probably grew up on that sort of soft, cultural, loving, gracious, not judgmental, always there when you're in a pinch. Just sweet Jesus. And as a result, I think it's caused us to not understand Jesus biblically. Or maybe you grew up in another part of the country where Jesus was angry and he was always coming back to judge, and certainly that's part of it, but the, the humanity and the mercy and the grace of Jesus was, was never really presented to you. Do you see how you can fall off on one side of the ditch or another? You can have a kind of soft Jesus who's just a good man or a, a judgmental Jesus who is just coming to just terrorize us in our sin. But this biblical view of Jesus is this one who is fully God and holy and just, but fully human, 100% God, 100% man. And what does Paul say about his role? It says that he is this mediator between God and men. So he is representing God to man, and he can because he's fully God and he's perfect. But friends, he's also representing sinful man to a holy God, and he can do that, not because he's sinful, but because he is fully man and he has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And Paul says about this redemption that whatever it is, that just know this, friends, that it is free and that it is coming through Jesus. He says something even more. He says that this Jesus, in verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Okay, there's another word. We gotta get into this word, all right? Again, I don't believe the lie that the church marketers tell me about you, that you can't understand this word. Yes, you can. Propitiation. That's a beautiful biblical word. Maybe your translation says sacrifice of atonement or something along those lines. This word propitiation is so important. A definition of this word is, I would say, that it is to appease a person or someone's anger by offering a gift that satisfies that anger and turns that anger in to favor. So remember what we were talking about when we were talking about the word redemption in the Old Testament? And if you, um, if you killed my goat, then you would have to make amends for the killing of my goat and you'd have to pay me back. Well, that word in the Old Testament is another word that's really just talking about making reparations. It's, it's really making amends for the crime or the wrongdoing. But this word propitiation that we see in the New Testament actually takes it a little further. It goes from just making amends for uh, an instance or a crime to actually getting, it makes it more personal. It makes it now that what needs to be appeased is not the loss of property, but the anger of another person. 
And Paul is whittling us down here and he's defining for us what it means to be made right with God. Not merely that a wrong would be righted, but that a God who is holy and just, who is angry at our sin rightly, would be appeased, personally appeased by Jesus's propitiation. Friends, that's at the very heart of understanding and being able to answer this question, how is a person made right with God? And the picture of God in the Bible is not that he is just some distant cosmic deity, but he is a personal creator who is just and holy and angry at the creation that has fallen, even though he knew it would fall, and has made a way whereby his just wrath could be satisfied. And that is through his son, Jesus, and his work on the cross. One theologian named Leon Morris, and by the way, I was just thinking about this the other day, isn't Leon just the coolest name? Leon. You just sound like a stud, whether you're a ball player or a theologian. Leon. Leon Morris wrote this in his classic book called The Atonement. Propitiation means the turning away of anger. Expiation, that's looking at that thing that I looked at in the Old Testament. Expiation is rather the making amends for a wrong. Propitiation is a personal word. One propitiates a person. Expiation is an impersonal word. One expiates a sin or a crime. But here in the gospel, in Romans 3 verse 25, Paul says that Jesus is our propitiation. He has personally satisfied a personal God. So let's step back and and stare at what's happening within the Trinity to bring about Our right standing with God. John Stott, the uh, theologian, says this. He says that God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Do you see that? So so let's step back. Who, Who is Jesus redeeming us from? Is 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 God in some cosmic tug of war with the devil? And, you know, Jesus hits a fadeaway jumper as time expires and and barely wins. And so, great God wins us back from the devil. No, friends, that's not the biblical picture of what's happening in our salvation. God is holy and just and good, creates a world that he knows will fall, plans for the redemption of that world by sending his son Jesus to redeem us ultimately not from wickedness or evil, but to redeem us from his just wrath. So think of it, think of it this way. We are saved, if we're Christians, by God, from God, for God. And I tell you this, friends, I I, I want you to see it this way biblically because I want you to know that the greatest thing that we are facing in this world is not demonic powers, although they are real. The greatest thing that we are facing in this world is not an untimely death by some cancer cell, although that is real and tragic. The greatest thing that we are facing in this world is not 
some terrorist or some political situation that we don't like or some uncertain future. The greatest thing that we are facing in our life is how can we be made right with a holy God and the outrageously good news of the gospel is that God has made a way himself whereby we can be made right with him through his son. Friends, that's why we gather here every Sunday for that good news. So we are saved by grace in Christ. And then one more thing Paul says. He says that we are saved through faith. What does he say there at the end of that first part of the verse 25? He says, God put him forward, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be, and this is all important, to be received by faith. So in other words, in order for this to actually be applied to our lives, it's not a universal redemption, right? This doesn't just happen to everybody merely because they're human. This only happens, this is only applied, this free grace that comes in Christ through his redemption and the propitiation of him going forward to bear the wrath of God and rise again in victory over it is only applied, is only applicable, only becomes real in those who through faith receive it. Two things we need to think about as we conclude here about faith and understanding it biblically and rightly. The first is is that faith is just like grace. It's a gift. It's a free gift that must be given to us by God. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 and 10. He says, for by grace, very similar language to what we've just read in Romans 3, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So this faith isn't something that God requires of us and looks and says, I'm going to span the world to see who has faith. And all that one has faith. That one has faith. That one has faith. So I'm going to apply salvation to them because they have faith. Because friends, what has sin done to us? Sin has actually killed us spiritually. So we are all kind of like Lazarus's in John chapter 11. We are all dead. We're in the tomb. And dead people can't have faith. So we're in a predicament. God actually must give us the thing that he's requiring of us. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember, friends, how we were made right with God freely by grace as a gift? Well, we read that in verse 24. We've been justified freely. Well, if if then we read faith here as something that we bring to the table in and of ourselves, then that undermines the very nature of the free grace of God. If salvation is free, that means faith is not something that we produce. Reynolds, I, said, I think, said it earlier, or Reuben or somebody, or maybe we sang it, I don't know, I heard it today, this morning. I know that. That the only thing that we bring to the table in our salvation is the sin that needs to be atoned for. 
That's our contribution. Contribution. And then God in his grace gives the gift of faith. And when he gives that gift of faith, he enables a person who was previously dead, who he has made alive, he enables them to be able to see and behold Jesus so that they would no longer trust in themselves, but they would trust in Jesus. And then that faith, which is necessary, becomes the the conduit by which God gives them all of the good things that he has for them in Christ. But friends, it's important for us to realize that that faith, that faith is a gift. And when God determines to save people by his mercy, he gives that gift and he always ensures that it works. So faith is a gift. The second thing that we need to understand about this faith is that it's not general. It's not just kind of ambiguous. It's not like I'm just a person of faith. Like I just believe that, you know, eventually... You know, uh, angels get their wings and caterpillars become butterflies and, you know, puppies have, you know, cute ears. It's not just a general sort of karma about how things eventually work out in the end. It's a specific faith and its object is Christ. Do you see that? We use this word faith liberally, like how he's a great person of faith. But when God gives a person the gift of saving faith, the object that it always beholds is not general optimism about things going better, but its object is always the person and work of Christ. This is what Paul says. He's putting all of his eggs in this basket of what Jesus has done. Listen to what he says in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. This is the important chapter about the resurrection. And we would do well to just read that chapter on on a Sunday. In fact, we have before. But let me just read for you verses 14 and 17. 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 14. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, in other words, he didn't just die for our sins, he rose again in victory over it. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he's saying if it weren't for an empty tomb right now, then what we are doing here is silly and we should all go home and eat Cheetos. Which is what I'd be doing, I don't know what you'd be doing. A couple verses later, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So friends, Paul is rounding out. He's giving us the full gospel here. He's saying that Jesus hasn't just redeemed and propitiated God for us on our behalf. He has also got up from the dead. We were dead. Jesus died for us. Jesus got up and conquered death. And now because he's conquered death, he can give life to those who are dead. Do you see that? And Paul is saying that your faith is in that full picture.
picture of Jesus who has not just died to appease God's wrath as glorious as that is, but he's also got up from that grave and vindicated and justified his holiness. Now because Jesus is justified through his resurrection, we, if we're trusting in him, receive the benefits of his justification. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter Verse 1 and 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is doing the saving, he's doing the causing. And what he does is he sends his son Jesus, fully God, to become fully man, to live a perfect life, to willingly lay down his life to redeem, to purchase back from the just consequences of God's holy wrath, to propitiate it, to not only purchase us back, but to actually please God, to satisfy to turn his justice into mercy, to cause him to be pleased with us if we're in Christ. He propitiates our sin, and then he rises again in victory. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the active agent in raising Jesus from the dead. And the Spirit of God raises the Son of God so that the Father of God the Father, God the Father is pleased and he, the triune God, causes us to be made alive through that. <laughs> now, I know you're excited about grandma's ham. It's baking right now. It's waiting on you. But friends, if you are a believer in Jesus... That should wake you from your sleepy religious doldrums and cause you to worship God with all that is within you. And I'm not just talking about singing a song more loudly in a few seconds. I'm talking about it should reorient the compass of your heart to shoot straight on the glory of God. That everything in your life, because there's all sorts of other important things in life, right? But all of them are a kind of spoke on a wheel that comes off of this great hub of the gospel. And we need to see that afresh this morning. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, and I end with this, friends, you, 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 I, I may have confused you a little bit today. Maybe I said some things that you didn't quite understand, and that's on me, not on you. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Even if, I, even if I was a much better preacher and I could really explain things in ways that were just awesome and so helpful to you. Ultimately, you know what? Here's the really beautiful thing I think about the gospel and salvation. It's ultimately not the consequence of rational argumentation and like a, a deduction that, okay, I can prove it to you. Friends, that's not what faith is. It... God must make you alive. That's what I'm, I'm completely, Spurgeon, there's this guy, there's a preacher back in London in the 1800s. I talk about him a lot. And he says that my hope when I get into the pulpit, he's actually dead now. 
But he said back in the 1800s, my hope when I get into the pulpit is not in a man's ability to understand or in my ability to make it understood. My hope lies in the freeness of God's grace. So you, you may not have understood. You may have lots of questions. And at the end of this service, uh, one of our pastors, Robert Ward, is going to be out at a table, hand out this little book called Who is Jesus for You to Get? We'd love for you to take that. I'm not trying to seal the deal and just kind of, you know, have you raise your hand and repeat a prayer after me so that I can fill out some statistic and be happy about some. No, no, friends. I, I want to be more respectful of what God may be doing and process in your life. But I just want to tell you this, that uh, I'm not presenting to you a rational argument. I'm presenting to you the miracle of the work of God to save sinners. And it's something that God must open your eyes to see. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, a few verses beyond where Reynolds read, verse 17, I think it is, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, some of the disciples that had been with him for three years, seen him do all these miracles, rise from the dead, it says some of them still doubted. How does that happen? You've walked with Jesus for three years. He did all these miracles, raised people from the dead. He himself rose from the dead. He's ascending into heaven, and you're like, nah, I don't know, I don't know. You know what that tells me? Salvation is not something you figure out. It's something God must give to you. And I pray right now that God would just liberally give new life, faith, new hearts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ even right now. Friends, if you sense that God is sensing, that, that you sense that God is giving that to you, do not leave this room without speaking to somebody that you know to be a Christian. I'll be down front. Some of the other pastors will be around. Find us before you leave today. We're going to sing a couple songs. Somebody's going to come up and read a scripture and we'll be done. No pressure. We're not going to manipulate you, but you have heard the good news of the gospel. How can a person, how can you be made right with God? By grace, in Christ, through faith. Let's pray. Father, take these words, I pray, and use them for your glory. Use them to produce more worship and obedience in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And use them to work the miracle of sovereign grace that comes in Christ, that is received by faith. Give faith as a free gift this morning so that any that came in not believing in Jesus can behold the beauty of your son, how he died and rose again. And through him and only through him, can we be made right with a holy God? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.